Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. Today, I sit down with a guy who has written comedy for big names in entertainment, has been the editor-in-chief for an interesting magazine, and he suffers from a mysterious affliction that he still hasn't figured out. Maybe you can help. Jack Helmuth is coming up. First, let's talk about this month's featured brew over at American Pride Roasters Coffee. An avid conservationist, historian, rough writer, president, and the original bull moose, we're speaking of Theodore Roosevelt. He overcame the poor health of his youth through hard work and strenuous physical training, and he eventually became the symbol for rugged Americanism during the early days of the 20th century. In fact, the dude took a bullet and still managed to give a 90-minute speech. Did you realize that Teddy Roosevelt was an avid coffee drinker, too. His son once said that Roosevelt's coffee mug was about the size of a bathtub, and he supposedly drank up to a gallon of coffee every day. Oh, man. Check out the Teddy Roosevelt blend. It's a full city roasted bean from Brazil, where Teddy went on a near-deadly expedition into the wilderness. It's a story I would encourage you to read about if you get a chance. But this blend in Roosevelt's honor is available now at aprcoffee.com. Look for the Teddy Roosevelt blend. And when you get to checkout, don't forget to use offer code ATM. It stands for at the mic. And you're going to get 10% off your purchase price. That's the Teddy Roosevelt blend available now at aprcoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Jack Helmuth is my guest this week. It was great getting to know Jack. He co-hosts his own podcast along with uh, a previous At The Mic guest, Brian Sack. Be sure to look for the Questionable Material podcast when you're done with today's episode with Jack Helmuth. We talked about that and about so much more in our conversation today. Jack Helmuth, thank you so much for making time if people are unfamiliar with you, I want you to, right out of the gate, tell them about a podcast that you do with a previous guest of mine, Brian Sack, Questionable Material. Tell us what you guys do, and welcome to the podcast as well. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, buddy. Uh, you owe me one. I mean, let's get that out of the way. Um, yep, yep, yep. No, no, no. It is my <laughs> pleasure to be here. I've been, I've been looking forward to this. You reached out to me a few months ago to do this. I've been looking forward to doing this for ever since then. Thank you so much for having me. It, sure. it really is such a, a cool thing to be here with you. So absolutely. Um, yeah, man, our podcast, you know, it's our, our podcast. So it's a comedy podcast and it's not one of those comedy podcasts that just like talks about comedy, like, Oh, in the days of stand up comedy and they tell stories and sort of wistfully talk about comedy. We perform comedy. We execute comedy. <laughs> we want to tell jokes, man. Like that's all that really matters to us on that show is we just want to be funny um, as often as possible. And that is our only agenda. We're not trying to get anyone elected. We're not trying to get anyone uh, uh, impeached or fired or canceled. Or it. All we want to do is just make you laugh. And we will make fun of anybody and everybody to do that. You know, we, we had a show back in the day that'll probably come up on, on the blaze. It was called the BS of a, mm -hmm. and that was the same, that was the same mission statement we had on that show. It was, uh, you know, uh, no sacred cows, just, you know, make fun of the left, make fun of the right, right. make fun of Glenn, <laughs> as long as we're <laughs> fair about it. Yeah. And as long as it's funny, that's like our only agenda is like, hey, Matt Gates is in the news. Like, oh, my gosh, we got to make fun of that. If if Biden is stumbling up the stairs, oh, my gosh, we got to make fun of that. Like, it's just we just want to make people laugh, man. That's our only agenda. And it's 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 really fun. It's, again, it's called questionable material. And um, 
it really is a, a great joy to do sort of uh, comedy. You know, as a comedy writer, it's it's very hard to you know do comedy these days where yeah. it's just about laughs and not about uh, you know applause and not about just people agreeing with you. And it's so necessary in this time. We have to have this corner of our world where, like you said, it's just a place where we go to laugh. Not, not where there's an agenda or anything like that, and it's very necessary. I'm a big fan of your podcast. You guys make me laugh out loud on a regular basis, so I ah, hope thanks. people will definitely check out Questionable Material. Um, you guys do a great job over there. Thank you. The things we talk about, like, you know, you can't, you can't say some of the stuff that we say on TV <laughs> or, or any place anymore because it's, it's offensive and, like, you know, we sort of have a philosophy, sort of like Michael Che, he's the, the anchor on Weekend Update, uh, and he's black and he's hilarious. And he sort of has this philosophy where you should make fun of everybody once a day. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter. Gay people, straight people, trans people, black people, white people, just make fun of everybody once a day. And then we're all just, you know, we're all just having fun, having a laugh, <laughs> coming together, having comedy unite us instead of like divide us. Like, it's just, it's it's all in good fun. If we make fun of a white person this week, we're going to make fun of a black person next week. Just, there's no, because it's not hateful. It's just like silly and, and it's, it's unifying, man. Right. Equality through comedy. How about that? Yeah. You like that? Yeah. Nice. Oh. Yeah. You can write that. You can have Ooh. it. If you want it. Hold on. I got to call the trademark office. If I got to, I'll be right back. Okay. And we're just going to wait here while Jack places a phone call. I do want to tell you, good people of this audience at the mic, that uh, Jack was born in Norfolk, Virginia, and I'm sure he's already finished making that phone call to the trademark office. Are you back, Jack? I, I am. Unfortunately, all um, all uh, phrases and company names with the word equality have been taken. Oh, no. I should have seen that oh, coming. I'm so sorry. Me too. Doggone it. Sorry sorry you had to waste your time with that phone call. So how was I life know. growing up in Norfolk? How long were you there, man? I was there for a year and a half. Came oh. out of the hospital straight to a trailer park. Oh, nice. So uh, I'm a real child of white privilege. <laughs> uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> yeah, we went to the trailer park in Norfolk, Virginia, and then moved to uh, Columbia, South Carolina for a oh. couple years. And then... Uh, which I uh, I have my first memories there. And then uh, for start kindergarten, I moved to a little rural town in uh, south of Rochester, New York called Avon. It's a farming community. My, my graduating class had 69 kids in it. So it's a real small school. Um, you know, every late March, the town would smell of manure because all the, the fields would thaw. So it's oh. like, you know, for two weeks, it'd just be like manure every time you stepped outdoors. And it was just a small <laughs> little farming village about 20 miles south of Rochester. There's nothing like frozen cow poo melting in the spring. Hmm? You know what? It's I, I, I had a job writing greeting cards for a while, and that was one of my go-tos. <laughs> so hang on a second. Um, I was an adult when I made a similar move. We moved from Charleston, South Carolina to New Jersey which is pretty similar oh. to Columbia, South Carolina, to Rochester, I would imagine. Um, yeah. And you said it was about kindergarten. Even at that young age, was that a bit of a culture shock or not so much being that young? No, being that young, every every kid was just, uh, there was no sort of culture shock. I mean, you know, we went from a, a small town to a small town. So, so to me, it was no, there's no difference at all. Mm -hmm. And you were an only child, much like myself. I wish I had been using this line for the entirety of my life as well. When I asked if you had any siblings, you said, no, your parents realized that they got it right the first time. No sense in messing with perfection. Uh, I, I, I did say that. <laughs> so do you like, uh, I, I ask all of the uh, guests who are only children such as myself, 
Are you more on the side of, I'm glad I was an only child, or do you wish you had some siblings? Because there's pros and cons on either side, right? There are. It's, it's so funny. I, I made very clear to my parents that I was very happy with the situation as we had. <laughs> and I would tell them, I would tell, Mommy, Daddy, I, I had a nightmare that we had another baby. You guys had a baby. Because I was real happy getting all the attention. I wanted to be like the focus. I wanted all the love and all the whatever presents, you know, whatever it be my little child brain wanted. I, I wanted to be an only child because I did not want to share I think my parents love, I mean that very sincerely. <laughs> and once I, uh, you know, once, the, you know, we were finally at an age for them to divorce <laughs> by ninth grade, I, I think that's when I realized like, oh, it'd be nice to have a sibling to talk yeah. about stuff with. So I, I think once I became a little bit more mature and not such a, you know, selfish pig, I, I realized like, ah, it would have been nice. Maybe that was a blown opportunity. How was life then? Did you spend your entire childhood then in Rochester or did you move around? Because it sounds like you've been doing a lot of moving around early in life. It's funny that you mentioned that once we landed there, that was it. And I am now in the process of helping my mom uh, fix up and sell that childhood house, the only house I've really ever known. That was our first and only house um, that we bought in 1980, August of 1980. And uh, 41 years later, I'm helping her sell it. And so uh, we, we certainly stayed put there. And so you then go off to college, you go to Syracuse University, and people in yeah. broadcasting know Syracuse and Northwestern, schools like that, as big-time broadcasting schools. Is that why you went to Syracuse? Yes, um, although I'm third-generation Syracuse. My mom went there. My aunt went there. I had a bunch of other cousins and other people like that who went there. And my uh, grandmother went there. And my grandparents were married on the, in the chapel on campus. How cool and is that? Back when, yeah. yeah, so I mean, like literally on the quad. I would walk by every day the the chapel that started my family's lineage. You know, I wouldn't be alive because of, if it weren't for Syracuse. So I love Syracuse. And it just so happened the school that I love and am so grateful for uh, was two hours away from my uh, home that I grew up and had the mate the best major in the industry for what I wanted to do. So it was a real, uh, you know, it was truly the fate stepping in saying this is where I belong. That obviously worked out great. Um, how often did you find yourself going back to wash clothes? <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the washing clothes issue. Uh, I was able to do that uh, fairly easily. It was being away from home. My first year, I was miserable, man. I, I cried. I was. I mean, look, I took, like I said before, you know, I had a graduating class of 69 kids. My freshman dorm had 85 kids on their floor. So it was like, where the hell am I? This is huge. This is too much for me. It's, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's going way too fast. I'm just a, you know, a hick, um, you know, a goober, uh, you know, and all those things are still <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> I just happened to get in the right industry and marry a pretty lady. You know, I just got lucky. So I was miserable my first year, just feeling like I didn't fit in and feeling overwhelmed. And then I adjusted, thank thank goodness, and stuck with it and and came to truly love it. But, you know, true big fish from a small pond entering a very big pond, and I felt overwhelmed. Well, you graduate from Syracuse, and your background in the entertainment industry is is all-encompassing. Tell us all of the places where <laughs> where we might have seen your work and not been aware that you were the guy 
behind the jokes, uh, behind the laughs. Um, tell us some <laughs> of the places that, that, that you've been in your awesome career. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, so I, I started off, I, I got internships at uh, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno in the summer of 95. That was the Hugh Grant summer, if you remember oh, that. Oh. When, wait, that's, he, wait a minute. The Hugh Grant summer, that's what propelled Jay Leno, right? That show took him past Letterman for the rest of his career, correct? Precisely. July 3rd, 1995, a Monday. <laughs> Hugh Grant is pre-booked before his before he picks up Divine Brown, a prostitute on Sunset Boulevard. And <laughs> this is when he's like married to the most beautiful woman on the earth, uh, uh, Elizabeth Hurley, uh -huh. gets caught in the Divine Brown thing and honors his commitment to the booking and comes on The Tonight Show. And How, how uh, amazing and, and, is that? Yes, right? And, so, and Jay Leno delivers the line that every radio station in America played all the next day, all week. Hold on, what hold on. What the hell Can, were you thinking? That's what I was, I wanted to see if I could remember it. I was going to oh, say. What, I'm sorry. Oh. No, you're fine. I was, I was going to say like, what were you thinking? But yes, I got you. Yes. So, um, good job. Did you have any <laughs> interactions with Mr. Grant backstage beforehand? Or is that not an area that you were involved in? I just wondered, you know, what... What was he like backstage? Was he nervous? Was he sweaty? Was he calm? Was he joking around? What was the mood back there? Uh, well, I'm sure he was stammering a lot as he spoke and playing with his hair because he's Hugh Grant. But beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I did not see him. That was you know that was such a big right. deal. I, I certainly had lots of guest interactions um, back then, from you know uh, El McPherson to Bill Maher to Ellen Cleghorn to. George Foreman. So, I mean, all sorts, but not Hugh that. Which of these celebrity guests sticks out for one reason or another? Well, I have a decent number of these stories over the years, but for, from the Tonight Show summer, uh, it was uh, George Foreman being able to shake his hands. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to shake, you know, the hands of the heavyweight champion of the world, one of the greatest fighters to ever live. This is going to be a handshake, you know, to remember. It's going to be like shaking hands with a block of iron. And it was this big, he had just big squishy mitts. And it was just like, oh, man, that's not what I thought it would be. These big squishy hands. And I was yeah. like, oh, geez, that's weird. Please tell me he was a genuinely nice guy to you because the reason I ask is I was asked, I forgot who asked a previous episode of At The Mic of all the celebrities I ran into, um, who was the nicest one to me. And far and away, it was George Foreman. Please tell me that was your experience. Oh, my gosh. Well. Oh, he was lovely. Yeah, he's a genuinely oh, he nice guy. No joke. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, that's great. He was he was great. And boy, those big squishy hands, man. That was a shock. <laughs> I was like, I was ready for like, you know, to enter manhood. And instead, it was just like a bag of marshmallows. <laughs> any uh, any celebrities the wrong way that you'd want to tell us about? Yeah, a couple. Elle McPherson uh, got out of her limousine. I was supposed to, to meet her limousine in the, you know, uh, back in the they were dropping her off, and for some reason, they had just me go and bring her from the limo to the dressing room area. And she gets, she just regally exits the car and extends her hand gently and says, "Hello, L." And I'm like, "Yes, I know, you're L." <laughs> and it just it just struck me as so funny, just L. L. It just it L. Um, and she was a, a pretty lady. That was fun to see. Um, you know, I've, I've had lots of celebrity encounters over over the years. Two that stand out as somewhat extra noteworthy. One negative 
which is what you had asked. And that was Mariah Carey. I was a script PA, which meant I just sort of kept track of the script for the uh, 1997 uh, MTV Video Music Awards, the VMAs. So that was a big show, right? And I'm backstage right in the area, like two feet off of the stage. So it's where the presenters and celebrities would wait the second before they appeared, you know, on stage, you know, when you see the celebrity walk out in an award show. Well, like I was in the area just feet away from there where they could like look at the script before they entered the stage. Mm -hmm. And Mariah Carey comes in and she sits down in her flashy, gorgeous dress (laughs) and she's drinking a full flute of champagne. And I'm like, oh my God, she's just, you know, chugging champagne. And an assistant runs up. As soon as she sits down, she crosses her legs and an assistant comes down gets on his hands and knees and without looking at her, just starts scuffing her high heels. Just as she just chugs champagne, just scuff, 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 scuff. Just (laughs) a guy on his hands and knees scuffing her shoes so that, you know, they won't be too smooth so she can walk perfectly. And it was just an image of, you know, of royalty and and a peasant uh, (laughs) pleasing her highness. And it was just like, really made me laugh. And then the other uh, interaction that I had that was so memorable was Vince Vaughn. Saturday Night Live, and I talked about this a little bit on on the podcast, so you may have heard this story, Keith. But um, so Vince Vaughn comes and hosts Saturday Night Live. So this is when I'm I'm working at Saturday Night Live, and which is another question that you had asked about, you know, some of the shows that I've been to. So I, I, after the Tonight Show, I interned at Late Night with Conan O'Brien, which is an amazing experience. And then after college, I got my first job uh, at Saturday Night Live, where I worked for three years. Got my first jokes on Weekend Update there uh, with Steve Higgins' assistant. You know, did did lots of stuff at Saturday Night Live. And uh, Vince Vaughn came to host that week. And I was pals with all the cast because, you know, you you work well together. And Jimmy Fallon and I would always do this. Jimmy and I were two weeks uh, apart in age. We're like, so we're pretty much the exact same age. And, you know, we're both 24 at the time, just being silly kids and whatever. We would always do this bit where we would see each other in the hallway. And based on who made the harder eye contact, that person was the aggressor. So you would, you know, like see each other in the hallway and then just start like race up to the other one and just hop on them and just start pounding them. Like it's like a frat house. You <laughs> pound on them you, 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 and then like you get them on the floor, you humiliate them. And then you, you just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's the boss now, Jimmy Fallon? And you just, you know, just silly, just, you know, 24 year old, lots of testosterone type of ridiculousness. Well, Vince Vaughn is hosting and he happens, Jimmy and I do this, not knowing that he's going to see it. And he saw it. Later that day, it's the Tuesday night. Tuesday night is the night when everyone stays super late. They stay till like six in the morning, writing all the sketches that will then be read at a read through on Wednesday. The sketches will be picked for that Saturday show. So it's super late at night. It's about midnight. And Vince Vaughn goes into to, to my boss's office, to Steve Higgins' office. And he says to me, hey, I saw what happened with Jimmy over there. I'd hate for that to happen to me. That was awful. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And so I immediately ran to Jimmy and I'm like, hey, Vince Vaughn just said this to me. And he said, hey, he said the same thing to me too. I'm like, all right, well, it's on. So later on, Vince Vaughn is in Chris Kattan's office writing what I'm sure is going to be a bad sketch. And we <laughs> grab some empty, <laughs> we grab some empty pizza boxes because, you know, we had like pizza, like midnight pizza or something that night. So we, we each grab a pizza box and we knock on Kattan's door. Hi, did somebody order a pizza? 
And Vince Vaughn looks up and he's like, oh no. And so Jimmy and I jump on him. We just just jump on Vince Vaughn. And I've literally got, he was on the cover of GQ that month. And I'm grinding his face <laughs> into the carpet being like, oh, no. hey, pretty boy, you, you feel so good. Cover of GQ. Not so pretty now, are you? Mm. You know, just ridiculous, whatever. All this stuff. And then for the rest of the week, like when you would see Vince in the hallway, he'd walk like behind a trash can to avoid coming anywhere near me as if he's a victim of assault. And... So we're like, well, we thought that was so funny. But then here's what we did. We decided we would do it again during a rehearsal. So we only tell two people that we're going to do this. So we're, they're, they're rehearsing a sketch on a Friday it, with all cameras on, all crew, the control room full. So we only tell two people that we're going to do this. Uh, the director of the show and Will Farrell, who is co-starring with him in the sketch. It was a really good sketch, by the way. And <laughs> I, so we tell them that we're going to do this, but no one else. So they start the sketch and we go to the costume department and wardrobe department and we get pizza guy delivery outfits and we get fake mustaches and pizza boxes. And we interrupt the middle of the sketch and say, did somebody order a pizza? Oh. And the look on his face was like, oh God, not again. And we hop on him on the stage at Saturday Night Live, pound him, and then race off. And all the camera guys are like, what the hell is that? And we race oh. off laughing. And he's just like in a puddle on the um, on the stage afterwards. Like, ah! And we're watching on the monitor, the monitor, which is broadcast throughout the building. The, the broadcast goes all the way to Burbank in, in California, all this stuff. And it was just – and at the uh, party, at the, the, the rap party – uh, that night, Saturday night, you know, it's like three in the morning and he comes up to me and he gives me a big kiss uh, on the cheek. And he's like, thank you for this week. Thank you for just treating me like one of the guys for just being cool and funny. And like, it meant a lot to just be treated normal. How and cool. I, I, I will never, ever, ever forget that. That is cool, man. Yeah. He seems like a, a genuinely nice guy. I loved him. Yeah. I, I'll say that, uh, if, if you guys did that to me, you would not have the same um, uh, res <laughs> response. Okay, just letting you know. So so you've obviously, you've been around with Leno and Conan and Saturday Night Live. It sounds like NBC was kind of, oh, before I move on though, um, with Conan, you know, sometimes he'll, he'll do these bits and he'll just have random staff members um, as a part of the bits. Were you ever a part of anything on camera um, with those shows that, that we could go back and look up? I was on one Conan. I don't remember the bit, and I'm sure it doesn't exist online. It was a, a, a fine but forgettable bit. But when I went to Saturday Night Live, I was on fairly regularly as an extra. Adam McKay, who's, the for my money, the funniest guy alive, um, would always put me into sketches uh, it was so cool. You know, the, the staff members, the writers would put me in, in things a lot. The most memorable ones, you know, I mean, I would do my weekend update jokes, and then I would do these little extra things, which is great to get the extra money. Yeah, and again, I mean, I was just in the background. The ones that I remember as the, uh, and this is a, a somewhat risque sketch, but the Tobey Maguire yoga sketch would be the thing you would type in, uh -oh. um, where uh, Tobey Maguire uh, 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 is teaching a yoga class and Will Ferrell is uh, finally able to achieve his dream of being flexible in yoga class. Oh, I'll no. leave it at that. Okay. And at the end of that sketch, I walk in. Um, and so that's, that's me as a, you know, back before my hair turned gray. Um, and so I'm, I'm in that I was in a uh, Adam McKay short film with Willem Dafoe. Um, 
so that, you know, if you just type uh, Adam McKay, Will Ferrell, uh, Willem Dafoe, that sketch would come up. I forget the name of it at this point. Um, Andy Richter was in it. Lots of good people were in it. It was such a cool um, mm. little short film. This is what launched his movie career. I've been on a lot of um, episodes of The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. You could look me up uh, playing um, racist cop, uh, Larry Wilmore <laughs> racist cop, where I, uh, I bust his desk. Um, I say, hey, yeah, this, this desk is registered to a Mr. Uh, Stephen Colbert. Uh, and I'm like, no, sir, it's, it's okay. I, I took over his time slot. And I, I you know, I'm like, well, but what about this busted taillight? And Larry's like, what busted taillight? And there's a taillight at the end of the desk. And I just take my billy club and smash it. And like, this busted taillight. <laughs> just, you know, play what you know. So I always played the white racist idiot on the nightly show, which is super fun. And it paid a lot of money. And I love that. But that's probably where you can see me. You can see me in the in a film I made with a bunch of cool people, Matt Walsh, who's one of the funniest, also one of the funniest people alive, and uh, Rob Riggle, Rob Hubel, um, all these people in a movie I actually made that I co-starred in called May the Best Man Win. Uh, it was an improvised, we shot a Curb, uh, curb Your Enthusiasm style where uh, we basically sort of wrote the outlines of the scenes and then improvised all of the dialogue. So we, we, you know, we told everybody what their characters were and where their characters were going. And then we improvised the movie and, and it turned out great. We wound up getting distribution for it. We made it for oh, 25 wow. grand and yeah, it was really, it was really cool. It's one of the things I'm most, I'm most proud of in terms of, you know, the, the movie's fine and funny and it's a great premise. It's um, two best friends compete to be the best man at their third friend's wedding. So it's, it's sort of like, it's, uh, you know, about, you know, how it hurts if you're not chosen to be someone's in someone's wedding party. You know, like it just, you know, you take that real emotion and then you, you find the comedy then. And so I think that's on iTunes and all that stuff. Oh, uh, cool. May the best man win. Okay. May the best man win. Um, so, you know, uh, so I've, I've been, I've performed, I, I realize that there are better performers than me out there. You know, you get a little more mature and you realize like, oh, like I'm fine, but I would much rather produce and create and write something for someone who's a better performer than me because they're better and the better people should should be on air but i'm i'm perfectly adequate i think that people will realize that you're more than just adequate jack when they listen to questionable <laughs> material um but tell us one of these jobs uh, I, I found this interesting you were the editor-in-chief of jugs magazine <laughs> walk us through that experience and if i have to edit out of the podcast later i'll take care of it uh, yeah i can i can do this pg i can do this pg yeah so I was waiting for a pilot on HBO that I had written for to be picked up or not. And it was like, they were told there's going to be like a three, three or four month um, window. It was the, uh, I, I, like a late night show. It was Rosie Perez uh, was going to take over the Chris Rock slot. I don't know if you remember when Chris Rock had his HBO show. Well, when Chris went on to go do movies or whatever, uh, they wanted to keep that time slot, you know, comedy and cool and everything. And, you know, if you think of the voice of a Latina woman, you think of Jack Helmuth and you give him a writing job. That just makes sense. Of course. Of course. It was actually really cool. Let me tell you a quick story about that. Rosie Perez, a uh, Latina woman, had an executive producer who was black. And they interviewed me. And I joked about that in my interview because I, I had a really good packet, which is uh, like a writing sample. And they thought my jokes were really funny. And so I sort of made that same joke of like, hey, if you want the voice of a Latina lady, then I'm your guy. And for people, since this is a podcast, you can't see me. I, you know, I'm as white as a piece of paper. You know, I'm just like <laughs> I am Wonder Bread. Like Wonder Bread is too ghetto for me. Like I, that's how white I am. Um, so, you know, so I so I joked about it. I'm like, you know, 
And Rosie told the story that she asked Chris for advice. Like, should I just hire a bunch of like, you know, Latino people and or black people or whatever? And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And, and he he gave her the <laughs> advice Lauren Michaels gave him. I can't. That's uh, that's all the Chris Rock I can. No, 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 no. It works. Um, it works. Oh, good. I can do Jay Leno and Norm McDonald. I can't do Chris Rock. Oh, no, no. Let's but hear Jay the, Leno. Um, I want to hear Jay Leno now real quick. Oh, hey, hey, everybody. It's, uh, you know, hey, Kev. It's, it's, so I thought this in the news. Monica Lewinsky. Well, uh, that, that's all I knew. That's, that's crazy, Jay. Jay. That's, that's decent Jay. And then Norm. Hey, hey, hey. So, uh, you know, David Hasselhoff is in the news. Hey. I can't, it's, it's rusty. It's that's rusty. Good. No, that's good. Hey, Jack. Hey, you got a jokes there on an update there? That's good. No, that's good. Man. Okay, sorry to interrupt your uh, your Chris Rock. No, Rose no, Rose please. Story. So, <laughs> so, as I said, adequate, perfectly adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, just hire the funniest people. That's what Chris Rock told Rosie, and that's what Rosie and and this guy did. They just found the the. It was a small staff. They found the. It was I think only five or six writers. They found the people who they thought were the funniest, and it's like God bless them. Like that's. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I appreciate that they thought I was that, but I appreciate that they, you know, made their decision that way. Anyway, I'm not sure. That, I just wanted um, to give them props. The business world is uh, a meritocracy anymore. So I'm glad to hear that uh, at least it was at one time. Uh, it, it was, and it is definitely, uh, you are correct. That has definitely changed. So I'm waiting for this show to get picked up by HBO. HBO is going to, it tells us they're going to take a long time to decide this. And my girlfriend is, so that means I'm unemployed for three months until I find out whether I have this fancy writer's guild job or not. And my girlfriend sees in a newspaper back when they had those, um, a little <laughs> want ad for jugs magazine, uh, <laughs> wanted a writer at slash editor, $36,000 a year. So she said, you know what? You should apply for this. Wait, and it said while, the name well, of the magazine in the ad, huh? Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. She's like, you, you should do this. It'd be a hilarious experience, and you could go write a sitcom about it someday. I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I applied, and I think they wanted it to, like, in their dream, they wanted it to be, like, Maxim Magazine. Like, they wanted it to be, like, you know, at the time, which was, like, the hit magazine. So, like, oh, we'll have this joke-slinging guy come in, and, you know, he can write all the stuff. And, and so I got the job. And when I tell you I wrote the entire magazine, I wrote the entire cover-to-cover magazine, which included – there are, you know, maybe eight or nine different models in in each magazine. There were a lot of different, you know, uh, sets of pictures. And so I would write, like, pretending to be the woman. Oh, I like it when men oh, stroke no. my hair or no, whatever. No. I would write that. Yes, sorry, dude. <laughs> no, so wait a minute. So, so dudes are reading this magazine thinking, okay, I got to write this down. Women like their hair stroked. <laughs> and it's really, it was you. It was me. It was me. <laughs> it was me. And and I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. I, like, I, I can't not write jokes. That is what I love. It is what I do. It is what I'm best at. So I, I would write these things where, like, you know, she would have, like, a gold-colored uh, uh, toy, let's say. And I would say, I like to pretend I'm I'm sleeping with C-3PO. <laughs> Stupid stuff like that. Like, no <laughs> woman is going to do that. Oh, no woman. No. And you were given yeah. that creative license, huh? Yeah, it was. It was a terrible choice on their part. I, I, I fit my entire fantasy baseball league in a in a, a story where it's like, I don't know who the baby's father is. Because <laughs> it was a pregnant model. Because in Jugs Magazine, they like to have pregnant models, which is weird to me, but uh-huh. I don't make those decisions. Um, 
And so, uh, so I, I fit my entire fantasy baseball league in as potential fathers. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wait, like, yeah. like, like people you know, or are you talking about MLB players? No, no, people I know, like people the, the know. fantasy, the owners uh-huh. of the other teams in my right, fantasy right, league. Right, right. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, did they appreciate you know, that? <laughs> oh, they loved it. I was a legend. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, I was a legend. So I obviously sent them all a copy and it was, you know, it was, it was really cool. But then, so I, I would write all that. I would write movie reviews. I reviewed a movie that was like, you know how they have these like sort of uh, dirty names and then just put like part eight, part nine, part 10, part 11, you know, like, you know, dirty school girls, 11, but that type of thing. So I, I wrote a review for, uh, I, I'll, I'll say the, the less dirty name. We'll, we'll pretend it's dirty school girls, nine. And so I, I start my review of it like, look, I like to look at these movies as three distinct trilogies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like ridiculous stuff like that. My favorite moment, I have, I have a, a female comedian friend who loved what I'm about to tell you so much that she, she framed, she actually cut it out and framed it and hung it on her wall. For one of these <laughs> reviews, I wrote uh, the third Harry Potter movie had just come out. Uh, so I wrote a review in Jugs Magazine of the third Harry Potter movie as a confused reviewer who was like, well, why aren't these people just going at it? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, this, this movie's so stupid, no one's going at it at all. Like, nothing good happens. And so I'm just like this angry, confused guy who like saw the third Harry Potter movie and didn't get it. <laughs> oh my, these these issues sound like uh, gold. What, what uh, time frame are we talking about for these? Uh, January through June of 2003. <laughs> um, yeah, man, it was it was crazy, and uh, yeah, and obviously it didn't go well, and and I was I totally wrong for the job. Oh, my <laughs> my all time favorite though. Oh my gosh, this is my favorite moment from that job. The magazine would take amateur pictures and publish them. So like, hey, send us your photos, and if we use them, we'll send you you know two two hundred bucks or something like that. And so you know you would get you know letters with photographs in them occasionally from from people who wanted to be in the magazine. And the, of course, the number one thing you need in a magazine like that is proof of age, right? Because that's the thing that'll get the door shut down immediately if you accidentally include someone who's too young. So you have to send in a picture of yourself holding a, a photo identification in one hand and a, a piece of mail in the other showing that it's addressed to you with your home address so that you can see that the home address matches with the address on the ID and all this stuff. That's just, that was the rule. So, so we get this set of photos from this one lady and we check the, the photo that she has sent in and there she is holding her driver's license and there she is holding a piece of mail from the bank, insufficient funds. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, it's, that's dark humor, but boy, I thought that was funny. That's good. That's awesome. When did you meet your wife, Betsy, along the line? So I met Betsy long after I'd gotten that stink off of me. Um, uh, I met her through a dating, oh boy, through a dating website. We signed up within a few days of each other. It was on OkCupid. We were each other's first date on January 31st of 2010. Hmm. We were engaged on April 16th, 2010. Oh, wow. We were pregnant uh, in July of 2010 and married on September 11th, 2010. Well, that's an interesting um, uh, anniversary date you've got there. Well, if you, hey, look, if, if you're in New York City and want to save money on your venue, uh, that's the date to do it. No kidding. 
No kidding. So, it, but, but it, it truly was. It was so we we just wanted to get married as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. We really found we felt like we'd found each other, and we and we knew we wanted to start having a family right away. Clearly, and we, so we were <laughs> so excited to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we started planning right in at the end of April, like you know how what, what's the soonest we can do. And obviously, nothing was available that summer, and so we were looking at like the the following summer. Except for that one date, September 11th, was like no one wanted that as their anniversary date, and it was a Saturday. It was perfect. It was it was on a Saturday, and it was free. All the vendors were free that we wanted. All the you know the DJ, the everything um, that we wanted was available that day, and we got it at a discount. So you know instead of instead of making it a sad thing, we honored people. We donated money to some charities, uh, and we 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 honored them at the ceremony. You know the victims of that day on the at the ceremony and everything. So we didn't pretend that it didn't exist, but we decided to take it back and make it a, you know, we, we can't, we decided to, to make it a happy and loving thing as well, that, that they can't take a, a day from us. So that, that was sure. sort of our, our thought process there. And it was the only day available. So yeah, we, yeah. we wanted to make it positive. Yeah. And you have two children together, Jack and Eden. I'm just curious. There's a Jack Jr. Why isn't there a Betsy Jr.? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. Um, well, obviously, uh, you know, when you have a male heir, he can inherit your land. And right. so, you know, we just wanted, you get that. Yeah. <laughs> Huge tracts so of land. Now that I have a proper heir. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, he's actually Jack the Fourth. I'm Jack the Third. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. Eden was actually my wife's choice. She gets to decide then. Very well. She gets to decide because, you know, and, and my wife is very cool about naming uh, our, our son after me, who is, you know, and, and keeping that legacy alive. Sure. Very cool. You guys have a couple of pets. I've got to hear about, uh, you got Carson, your yep. Chihuahua mix. And by the way, when you um, responded to this email at the time, you said you had to take Carson to the vet the next day. Did that did that work out? That visit, everything okay? Yes, thank you. He's actually it was a wonderful visit. He was super super healthy for a a nine year old. You start to wonder, you know, he starts to slow down a little bit and like um, super healthy. So thank you for asking. He's great. I'm glad to hear that. And then there's the cat named Kiki, who I Mm -hmm. guess uh, Kiki's six months old. And I guess the day you adopted Kiki, she escaped. Yep. And um, you got her back after 36 hours. Yes. If I, if memory serves, you talked about this on the podcast. Uh, I did. Well. Yeah. So, so what was the story there? So we, we drive to Connecticut. So we, we, we had this the, during the entire pandemic. We, we had actually, um, the day after quarantine started, we had an appointment to like go see a cat in a, this big apartment building in Brooklyn with this kind of crazy cat lady. And we decided to keep it and we go and we, it's, it's sort of a risky move because there really was COVID everywhere around here at that point. And so we go see this cat and we're like, oh, my daughter's got her heart set on getting a cat. So important to her. And so we wind up, and this lady winds up getting COVID like a week or two later. Like, I don't know how we dodged that bullet. Um, and so we wind up not getting that cat and just like, uh, you know, one of the stories during quarantine that came out was that pet adoptions were through the roof and that just pets weren't available, which is wonderful. But we couldn't find a cat. We couldn't find a cat. Couldn't find a cat. We tried. My my wife probably submitted 25 applications, which is strenuous. I mean, that sounds easy, but it is not. You know, mm. people want all sorts of proof that you're a decent person and all sorts of crazy information about you before they'll consider talking to you about an interview to adopt an animal. It's it's crazy. Um, so. So we finally find this cat. We just like paste, you know, 700 bucks and just say, heck with it, hypoallergenic cat. We're just going to go get it in, New- in Connecticut. 
We're driving home with the cat. The cat falls asleep. This little angel, this two-pound puff, a two-pound white puff. Maybe she's eight weeks old at most. The kids are holding her. We pull up to our house. The cat has never been there. We're taking her into the house. My son is holding the box that, that she's in. A dog barks. She gets spooked, leaps out of the box, oh. and races away. Gone. Gone. The kids are hysterical. I'm sobbing. My wife is sobbing. After everything that is going on in the world, and oh my gosh, we can't even adopt a cat. We'll get back to our conversation with Jack Helmuth momentarily, but first I want to tell you about CBD products as they relate to your pets. Not only your health, but your pets. I'm serious. See, my dogs, they are so well-behaved, and I so appreciate that. But nothing excites them more than A going on walks, and B, the pet treats that are available at DrMonroe'sCBD.com. All of the pet treats from Dr. Monroe are made with 90% beef. My dogs go crazy for them, and I can feel comfortable knowing that they're getting zero fillers while I'm helping them with any possible joint pain that may be setting in through that CBD infusion. It's available with the pet drops that they sell over at DrMonroe'sCBD.com. So not only are they getting high-quality pet treats that they love receiving, but they're also eating healthy. And I love that. Please head over to DrMonroe'sCBD.com. Try these pet treats that your dog and cat, they're both going to love. Use offer code KEITH, K-E-I-T-H, when you go to checkout, and you're going to get 15% off of your purchase. And don't forget that 20% of your purchase is going to Child Help, an organization to help abused and neglected kids. You'll be doing so much good for you, your pet, and children who are in need. That's DrMonroe'sCBD.com, offer code Keith. We couldn't even get her into the front door. We're the worst parents ever. <laughs> and so we search and we search and we search. And we have neighbors. Like, what a great – the community came together. Like, people posted on Facebook. People drove from, like, 45 minutes away just who, who like, love animals and just would come with flashlights. People we never met would just come scouring, the, you know, like a two block radius by all hours. Like I would make rounds at 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. And I would run into people with flashlights looking for our cat. Wow. It was awesome, awesome sense of community. And like, we're in this together. It's like, it's everything you want, you know, from, for people, from humanity, from, like we're going to, we're in this together. It was awesome. And so, but we couldn't find her. She was, you know, She's a two pound, I mean, just a wisp of a thing. We have a ton of raccoons, a ton of hawks, a ton of um, possums, things that would just rip her up just in this in this community, not to mention cars and all sorts of things. And like the odds are so long that we're going to get this cat back. So we go to the AS, um, I think it's the ASPCA and rent a bunch of um, animal traps and a bunch of cages where you put food in the back and they the animal walks in and tr triggers the thing. And so we, we put, uh, I rent nine traps and we put them in various areas close by uh, with food in them. And you're supposed to be like at, at dusk, you're supposed to take the food out because you don't want to catch the raccoons and possums and stuff like that. That's right. not a pretty scene. <laughs> so so we, take the, we take the food out of all of those. And I tell my wife, just leave, leave food in the one in our neighbor's um, shed. Cause that's, I always thought that was just the most likely place where she would be. And like, look, if we catch something else, we catch something else. Just let's just leave it there. 
at 12:30 at night that next night so it's been 36 hours since we've had her at least and she has no you know she doesn't know who we are she's never doesn't know the house she's not going to like wander back and my wife goes outside and is just listening and she's playing on you youtube cat mother sounds meow meow <laughs> Literally playing cat mother sounds because someone, you know, I mean, it's probably like a wives tale. You know, everyone has like an opinion on the thing that'll work, except this worked. She all of a sudden hears, <laughs> and she's like, oh my God, oh my God, what, what, what? <laughs> and so she, she, so she stops the thing and she's, <laughs> she goes into the neighbor's shed and there in the cage is the cat. I can't believe we caught it. That is amazing, man. That's amazing. It's, the odds are insanely long. No kidding. Wow, what a great story, um, though. Oh, thank you. It was great. And and in, even uh, so we're collecting all the traps that, you know, to return them and get our deposit back uh, the next day. And I get to the very last trap in a, in a house, like two houses in a yard, two houses down. And um, I go to it and there's like a bunch of like leaves and stuff in it. And I go to grab it and I realize that the leaves are a nest for a, a raccoon that's in there. Oh. So I'm like, ah, what do I do? And it's just sleeping and just happy as it can be in this cage. And so we, you know, have someone come and free it. That is amazing. Tell me Kiki is an indoor only cat now. Uh, we lost her again and gave up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, we, we went through this once. We're not doing it again, cat. Goodbye. Absolutely. You, you, got, you kids are going to get hamstered. You're going to like it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, she's an indoor cat. Yeah. Um, she's just started sniffing around doors though, where it's like, what's out here? Oh, no. Like, no, you don't. No, no, you've, you've already no, had a lifetime don't. of outdoor experiences, Kiki. You're staying in. Okay. Exactly. Babe Ruth, the Beatles and Johnny Carson. Three, I was going to say people, I guess, technically six people that you would like to go back <laughs> and uh, meet in history. Uh, why'd you pick those? Johnny Carson is going to tell you the best Hollywood stories. He lived a crazy life, you know, the drinking and the women and the, um, the famous friends and, and just, you know, coming up in, you know, as, as the king of comedy, man. I mean, he was it for late night. And you know, even though David Letterman is my idol, Johnny Carson is his. And, um, you know, the, the stories that Johnny Carson could tell uh, would just be amazing. I mean, the Beatles, I still love the Beatles. I've gotten my son to totally love the Beatles. Um, the dynamics within the group, you know, you would love to see to right. see them, like to see, fly, like a fly to see on them. the wall during like a studio yes. session or something. Because I will tell you, oh my gosh, we were actually making a long drive here from Dallas to New Mexico at one point, and Sirius XM Radio on the Beatles channel, they did a, um, it was just like the history of of the Beatles, and it took you through, I think it was every song, so it it. It took you through, and there's this Beatles historian guy that would interject before every song and every album that they were switching to. It was fascinating. This guy is a Beatles historian by by trade now. He tells this one story. I can't remember which album it was. I don't think it was Rubber Soul, which is my favorite, far and away. Um, oh, wow. But he talks about how they were running out of studio time. They had like 24 hours left to rent the studio. Well, first of all, you're the Beatles. You can have as much time as you need in the studio, okay? But yeah, they, totally. they had to come up with a certain number of songs for their next album. And four of these, and I wish I had written down the songs, four of the songs on this album, they hadn't written with 24 hours left at the studio. No. And I think it's one of them where they, they go and they buy this old antique piano. So it wasn't the White Album. It, it was something around that era. 
and they just threw it. And these songs are not filler tracks. These all, at least three of them, maybe all of them, are songs that you know by heart. And it wow. it is fascinating how talented they were. And even when under the gun, no sense of urgency or panic, they just made art. And what a talented yeah. group. I, I almost think of awesome. it as... Like the, the founding fathers were great men that all came together at, at this perfect moment in world history to create the United States of America. It's like, that's kind of how you feel when, when you put on a Beatles album, you know? It's like, here, yes. here are four musicians that found each other and, and collaborated for, I don't know, 10, 15 years and gave us some of the most memorable music in all of history. Keith, and that is beautifully said. You're totally right. And that's that's what makes it. I've but, always been. I would ruin it, though, by saying U2 is still a better band, though. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I think you meant Oasis, but that's I forgive you. Oh, no, and, I didn't. And... <laughs> no, no, they're good. No, they're, they're, they're good. I like them as well. But anyway. Uh, I, do, I do, too. I, I do, too. I, but but I'm, I'm with you. Like, U2, the Beatles, these are bands that my kids aren't allowed to leave the house from under my wings until <laughs> they know these songs. Anyway, go yeah. ahead. The floor is yours. No, absolutely. Well, I've I've always been attracted to um, uh, two things: brunettes and talent. And um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all serious, well, uh, both those are honest answers. But I, I always, always, always like uh, talent is so attractive to me. Like I love talented people. I admire. I, I just I, I can't take in enough of of talent of, of yeah. whatever their art is. Um, you know, I have so many talented friends in, you know, in, in the entertainment business and I just love to see them do what they do. I love to be able to be in a position to help talented people show their skills and their beauty to the world. Um, it's, and, and that's, you know, I think that list is sort of comprised of people who I consider to be some of the most talented. I, I it's probably why I chose them because just, there's nothing yeah. more appealing to me than just people who are great at things. Greatness is really cool. Okay, I got to ask you. You went deaf in one ear back in 2017. Are are yeah. you still suffering from that? Yes. Uh, yes. What happened? Any um, idea? Not really. So I'll tell the story quickly. I was uh, eating at my favorite uh, eating lunch in Brooklyn, New York, in my favorite restaurant. And all of a sudden, and they, the radio was on in the restaurant and as it usually was. And all of a sudden I just sort of heard like a, like a jack that wasn't quite plugged in right to a speaker. Just like, like, oh man, the radio is a little wonky right now. I'm like, huh, feels like it might be my ear. And so I like kind of rub my right ear. I'm like, yeah, huh. And I, I snap my ear. I'm like, oh yeah, it feels like, like I can hear a little bit less there. Is there something like waxy? What, what is this? Five minutes later, it was like, really, like, really, like I could barely hear the snap. And 10 minutes after that, I was, com it was completely deaf in that ear. Oh my. It just shut off and died. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, did I, you know, from like earbuds, did I like rupture a eardrum or something? So I, I leave the restaurant early and go to urgent care and they, they look at the ear and they say, no, your eardrum's perfect. It looks beautiful. Wow. Like they, so like, you better go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and it was a Friday. And like I said, it was a Friday, Friday, October 13th, Friday the 13th. And um, uh, it, uh, Friday, I guess, is the day that a lot of the ear specialists scheduled to do their surgery. So all across the city. And, you know, if you're going to go deaf, I would recommend going deaf in New York City because there's really fantastic mm. doctors 
who specialize in that. And I went to the, the ear, nose, throat, you know, uh, hospital and, you know, it was really fantastic, um, to, to get treated. And, um, but there are no specialists there because they all perform surgery. So the, the emergency room people correctly gave me a dose of steroids and told me to go see a specialist on Monday. So I took the steroids completely deaf in one ear and went back on Monday. And the lady looked in my ear and she said, yeah, uh, this is called sudden sensorineural hearing loss. It happens to about one in 5,000 people in 85% of cases, uh, some or all hearing comes back and hopefully that'll be the case with you. And so we need to immediately start you on more steroids, but we need to inject it liquid steroids directly into your ear. So she took a needle like, like for like from a Monty Python sketch, you know, like a comedically large needle where it's like, Oh, you know, and shoved it in my ear. No. So I'm, I'm on my side. And what they don't, what she didn't tell me is that it would, it would fill up your sinuses because it's all that stuff's connected. So she gives me the shot in my ear and then it feels like I'm drowning because it's like, oh, I'm sucking in steroids. So I do that once a week for four weeks and nothing changes. How much pain are we talking about during, during this procedure type? Like what, what are we feeling in there? Yeah. uh, It just the, the immediate in, uh, sharp pain and the immediate um, introduction of, of fluids into areas that are usually for breathing, and it was horrendous. It was it was just awful. Oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, to- totally terrible and totally scary. I mean, the you know, uh, you know, people don't like getting a you know a shot you know the size of a you know pin let along the you know no kidding the size uh, of a, you know, i've only of french bread yeah i've only seen a cartoon needle like that once in my life but that went into my leg for some pain that i had i think i would leave before i let them put that in my ear yeah it was it, it was really terrible but then what so here so what you don't expect when this happens is the vertigo and the complete loss of balance i would I, I couldn't I couldn't sleep uh, on my side anymore. I had to sleep like completely propped up, so sitting up every night because I would get so dizzy. It would I mean it felt like I was on the tilt a whirl at an but like the tilt a whirl on crack, just spin 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 spin. It was horrible. So I had to sleep sitting up for months and months and months. Um, and then I would get out of bed and I would fall down. I, like I was spinning so bad I couldn't. I'd have to wait ten minutes. To, from waking up, sitting on the edge of the bed before I could adequately stand up. And then I would have to go from my house in Westchester, which is, uh, uh, you know, 20 miles north of the city, take the train in to see my specialists, all these doctors. And I was literally the guy, oh, here's all of a sudden is a perfectly healthy 42-year-old guy with a cane. I was the guy you got up for on the subway because I had to sit down. I would get on the subway and I would like, I would fall over and people would be like, here, take my seat. And it was embarrassing. And, um, but it was crazy that the vertigo was really difficult. I still can't sleep on, on, on my right side. I can sleep on my left side, but the right side, I just start spinning still. Uh, I did hyperbaric oxygen, which had the crazy side effect. So I literally got into a chamber with put your, put, I want everyone to put your hand right now in front of your nose. Just put it in front of your nose. That was the chamber I was in, getting hyperbaric oxygen um, for two and a half hours, laying down in a, in a tube with glass like 
right there in your face. Um, just breathing in the stuff, uh, you know, because that's God. was one long shot remedy that maybe the, the, the supercharged oxygen would, you know, increase the, ox, the oxygenated blood and it would, the ear would fix itself. Um, it, it fixed my vision temporarily. Uh, I wear glasses and the oxygen makes your eyes better. An interesting side effect. So I would then drive home and my glasses no longer worked because I didn't need them anymore, but I still didn't have good enough sight. So I was like, you know, stumbling around with vision problems, wow, half man. deaf, um, all this stuff. It was, it was just crazy. And they never figured out what it was. Uh, they think maybe it was like a virus attack uh, on my ear and, and it just attacked my, my ear. And then that was that. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you this though. They the, tested me for everything. They yeah. tested me for everything, dude. Uh, what a nightmare. Can I just ask though that the loss of balance, like when you're on the train and stuff like that, that has passed, right? That was from the procedure, correct? Not from the initial issue, right? No, it was from the initial issue. Oh it was my the, that gosh. was 100% issue related. Your body just adjusts okay. after, it took me about five months. Oh my. Okay, man. Well, let's uh, let's go back to your childhood. You were three years old. Your, your your earliest memory of throwing a yellow Nerf football, landing on an outdoor grill, and catching fire, brother. That sounds like my childhood. That's the kind of stuff I would do. I, I bet I bet that image is seared into your brain. Yes, it's one of my first memories. We talked earlier at the very beginning of this about memories from South Carolina. That was the first one. <laughs> It was. That was. I remember releasing the ball. I remember seeing it and realizing, oh shoot, that's gonna wind up on the grill, and it did. And I remember it being on top of the refrigerator later. My beautiful yellow Nerf ball, um, charred black. Oh man, that's one of yeah. those things where like you almost want to keep that for the rest of your life, just as a keepsake. But at the same yeah. time. When you do stuff like that, uh, there's a term for, for that. It's called being a hoarder. But still, <laughs> wouldn't you love to still have that football? I mean, that that's hysterical, man. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. No, I, I, I'm totally with you. It's, it, you know, from there, my athletic career only went down. <laughs> yeah. It, it's why I got into comedy. Right, right. That sounds about like my trajectory as far as athleticism <laughs> as well. Tell us about your mom, man. Oh, man. Um uh, super, super cool. The, the epitome of, of a person who does everything the right way, like a rule following way, but not in that nerdy type of way, just in the way of like, well, it's just the right thing to do type of way. They're just the most centered, moral, wonderful person ever. And, and she taught me everything I, I know about people and human beings and empathy and 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 how to treat others and understanding why people behave in the way they do i my mom tells me stories that i would always ask her questions at bedtime like why are people evil and wow. we would just sit and talk about things like that and um it, you know but but it doesn't even have to be that grand why why does someone behave in this small little way why does someone why is someone upset at a clerk in a store. Like, why is that man yelling? Why is any of those things? And, and we would just talk about it. And she gave me a, a really great understanding of, of just human beings and, um, and, and, and just, just empathy, man. She's the best. She's irreplaceable, man. She's, right. thank, she's alive. Thank goodness. And, um, you know, she has emphysema. So I was very scared during uh, the pandemic because if she gets it, 
with her conditions, she'd be a goner. This thing came ashore looking for Janet Helmuth to gobble her up because she, she'd get it be gone in a day. And, you know, she stayed safe and, and she's just the best ever, man. She's, mm. uh, aren't moms the best. I, they're the best. Seriously. Um, just the best. We are blessed to have great moms. That's for sure. Um, that's great. Tell us about yeah, we are. your dad, because under the section where I ask if there's any regrets you'd care to share, you regret not calling your dad to your room, um, like when you get scared as a kid. I don't know. You you think that that yeah. really bothered him? I I th I thought it did. I. Uh, oh, and, and speaking of which, my son just uh, entered the room. Uh, is he looking for something for? Uh, hey, pal. Hey, Abby. Who are you calling? Now? I'm I'm on a podcast right now. Remember how I said I was going to be on a podcast? Yeah. I'm currently on the podcast right now. Oh. And I'm about to talk about my dad. So how perfect that you would come in. Just now, and now you're crawling away. I love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Are you okay? Do you need anything? No. Okay. Um, I don't know who that was. Just strange boy just walked into my room. Um, <laughs> it, it's well, it's so funny. It's it's so funny that he walked in there. You can cut that out if you want. But um, it, it's so funny that I, I remember when I would be scared at night, as you know, as a kid, as five, six, seven. Or, or want something. And I would always, always call my mom. Mom, mommy, can I have, can you come here? Mommy, can you come here? I need this. I need something. I, you know, yep. I'm scared about this. I want water, whatever the thing was. Mm -hmm. And I would always call her and I would always be aware that I wasn't calling my dad. Mm. And it, I always felt guilty about it. I just always, t t it's something I remembered growing up. I remembered it at all times. I then remembered it when I became a father, whereas like, you know, my, uh, the fear of not wanting to be on the receiving end of that, of, of, of not being chosen, because it always felt like, That's you know, when you're in need, you reach out to the person you f are closest to or mm. um, in some way. And I it always felt like a rejection of him. Wow. And I always just felt guilty of it. I just even as a seven year old, I was just like, darn it, I, I wish I wanted to call my dad right now, but I just want mom. And so I, it tormented me. Now, is your dad no longer with us then? I mean, no, he's, he's definitely with us. Jack, well, Jack the second is alive and well. Well, have you, have you talked to him about this? And if so, you know what? what was his response? You know what? That's a, that's a fantastic question. I have not, we've talked about a lot of things, um, but I never brought that up. You know, I, I think, that now that you ask me that, I think I'm still, which is ridiculous. How, how can you be ashamed of something you do as a, as a seven-year-old? I think I'm still embarrassed that I well, made him. I don't want to bring up the fact that it might be uncomfortable for him that he hmm. would ever feel not chosen. I so I have never brought it up. Well, as someone who's lost their dad, and has oh, interesting incredible amounts of things that I wish I had discussed with him. I would encourage you to look for an opportunity to talk to him because dads are complicated, man. I mean, every dad-child relationship has to have more complicating factors than, and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, and maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience, but it seems like the father-child relationship is a lot different than the mother-child relationship in that the communication between mother and child seems to be, at least in my experiences, seems to be a lot more organic and um, 
easier because with the dads being dudes, there, there are so many layers there. Uh, again, maybe this is just, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but it just seems like guys are harder to express themselves and to express to them. I don't know, but I'm just telling you as someone who wishes that my own dad was still around, um, take the opportunity to talk to him because when he is gone, then you're gonna really wish that you had had and maybe this isn't something that you want to discuss with him, but if there is anything on your heart that you feel needs to be discussed, which could be light years away, you never know. That's just it, Jack. You don't know where this conversation could lead and what you guys could right. end up talking about. So anyway, uh, I would just say, no, hey, I... if you have something to say, do it, because one day you're going to have something to say and you're not going to have the opportunity. You know what, dude, that is beautifully said. I'm, I, I'm so glad you said that. I think it, that's a great thing for everyone to think about, and certainly me. Uh, what, what's the, what would be your number one thing? What, what's the, is, is, there a, 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 is there a one thing that sort of still gnaws at you where you're like? <laughs> Not for this podcast. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh -huh. There might be uh, legal ramifications. Uh, no. Oh, wow. Okay, no, cool. no, no, no. It's, um. I will say the fallout following my dad's death, and there are so many questions um, um, there was such a mess left behind right. that I am I am personally very hurt that there wasn't better communication. In other words, right. there are some, there's some fallout from his death that there's so much ambiguity around um, a couple of very, very big things that I will never fully know or understand. And it sucks that I will never have the opportunity to have these questions answered. And so maybe it's my nature, but I will always default to the worst possible answer to my questions right. and i will say this though um if you're a parent and you're listening to this don't leave your kids in the dark on anything make sure that oh. you take the initiative to talk to them because you know it's uh and, and you know what this is the other thing earlier we were talking about being an only child and i'm so grateful that you haven't lost either of your parents yeah. I will tell you that the absolute worst feeling that you will have as an only child is when your parent passes and there is nobody on the planet in the same boat as you. If you had yeah. siblings, they would be experiencing everything that you're experiencing. But when you get to that point, and I hope it's way down the road for you, you will be the only person who will be able to relate to how you're feeling. Anyway, yeah. um, let's. Uh, that, huh? that that it, that breaks my heart. It, it's yeah. It's it's. I think about that. I think it's it's. I dread that day. I think about it a lot. Uh, you know, which is seems silly. Why waste the time alive worrying about those moments when they're not here? But um, I, I think about that a lot, and 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 realize that that will be a burden uh, that I'll have to carry, and I I do I'm afraid of it. I didn't even think about it until it happened to me. 
So I'm glad you're looking far ahead. But besides, you may talk to your dad about something and something may come out of that conversation that you never thought about that you will be able to impart to your children at a future date. So at least take the opportunity if there's any questions that you want answered or anything you want to discuss while well, you can, man. That's what I would say. Can, can I tell you something my dad shared with me? Sure. Be, be, he, because he was adopted, mm. he volunteered when I was 17 years old uh, after going to see a, our first Yankee game, he told me where I was conceived. <laughs> was it at he Yankee Stadium? <laughs> <laughs> now that's a story, man. It was in Monument Park. Okay. Under under the Babe Ruth Monument, which oh. is why I wanted to be Babe Ruth. Um, no, um, <laughs> it was on New Year's Eve at my grandmother's house. Oh, okay. And so with, when she passed, I sold the bed I was conceived on for $25. Did you know that was the bet at the time then? I I did. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. There's a lot of history yeah. there, huh? Oh, a lot of history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is for collectors. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. wow. So, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that's on eBay now. You know, fa famous podcaster, a bed, historic. You know, yeah, just sure. Google it. I'm sure it's there. I, I, yeah, I'm sure it is. I, I mean, I will say that's not one of the things that I would be moved to discuss with my dad if he were still here. But uh, I'm glad that you had that <laughs> conversation. That's cool. That's cool. What, it's so funny because he just out of the blue said it. And because and he said it that um, because I never had a chance to know stuff like this. Uh -huh. So I, clearly it was just, you know, I, maybe it was I was getting close to getting going off to college. And 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 he just shared this information like I don't know why he decided to. But just I, I think the pain that he still had about being being adopted being given up for adoption um i think was on his mind that he was deprived things like that and decided to share that little piece of information wow. i don't want to make any assumptions here but look at this man i mean obviously he's willing to talk to you about pretty much everything if he's telling you where you were conceived man <laughs> totally totally right <laughs> you know about my dad you know the, the thing i will always think about with him always i i think about this all the time is he always made clear just how much he loved me. Like, you know, it didn't matter if there was a fight, you know, an argument or a, you know, or like, oh, my dad's being mean because he's making me do my homework. And, you know, whatever. The things you get mad about your parents about, whatever those things were. Um, and never at any point, ever, 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 did I ever doubt that he loved me more than anything in the world, more than anything. And that I just, um, I, adm I admire that, you know, a child of that age and of his circumstances, you know, um, did in his very uh, special, unique way, just made sure that I, that his son knew that. And I, I always knew that. I just wanted to say that. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So do you want to tell us about your childhood experience with one Heather Wells in first grade? <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't believe I said all this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it feels better when you're typing it as opposed to wow. talking it, right? Oh, my gosh, Keith. Yeah, Heather Wells, my first first grade love. I was huge crush on her. She must have been a brunette. Um, and <laughs> and I think she was. A huge crush on her. And I was a, I was a porker. I was a real chubby dude. Um, <laughs> um, up until sixth grade when I like became prone to diabetes and lost 40 pounds and was thin. Wow. Uh, after that, but so I was, I was a fat kid from, from kindergarten through sixth grade. I was a big fat fatty and the, and, and 
Heather found out, as you always do in first grade, um, when someone has a crush on you, because you tell someone, they immediately tell the other person. And Heather Wells told me, oh, I'll never marry anyone who's fat. And it, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of funny. But Man. that, I'm telling you, it sounds ridiculous. I'm a 46-year-old man. Uh, or am I? Yeah, 46. Boy, <laughs> I go through the same thing. I'm like, wait, am I okay? Yeah. 47 could be. No, it's 46. Uh-oh. Call the kids. Did anyone else smell toast? Burning toast? Anyone? Oh. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm a 46-year-old man, Keith, with um, the two greatest kids, the greatest wife. Uh, I've worked in TV. I've had dreams come true. I've like done amazing things and I still have body issues to this day. And it mm. is, I probably tied to that comment. Wow. I have difficulty looking in a mirror. I hate the zoom era because I have to see my fat zoom face in the corner. It stayed with me as a first yeah. grader. I mean, what a silly thing. I, it's, it's, it's almost embarrassing that when you're six or seven, whatever you're in first grade, six, probably like why on earth would that still matter when you're in ninth grade or when you're 46? Yeah. But, but isn't, it, it isn't it, yeah. weird though how different things stick with us and and different um seemingly uh, innocuous comments turn into a lifetime of echoing around in our brains because we all yes. if, if i took a moment and revisited all the all the things that affected me in my life i'm sure they were minuscule moments in time that that meant nothing to anybody whatsoever but means the world to you but you know, I, I, I got you. I totally understand that. Yeah. It's, and maybe it's also then a good reminder to, you know, to be as kind to other people because you never know what silly <laughs> offhanded comment can stick with someone wait, for 40 wait years. A, wait a minute. I thought I thought what you were about to say is maybe it's a helpful reminder to, I don't know, lay off the mega stuff Oreos, but you went a different direction. <laughs> Sorry about that. By the way. I want to throw something else here under your embarrassing moments and stuff. Um, you talked oh, about uh, lip syncing at an SNL party. Um, but yeah. but you before you tell yeah. that story, I want to ask you, episode 45 of At The Mic, if people want to go back and listen to that, Steve Krakauer was my guest, and he used to go to these after-show parties with Saturday Night Live that he talks about in that episode. Oh, I cool. just wonder, any chance that, and you may not even know, I don't know exactly the era that he was there. I wonder if you guys crossed paths any of these wild parties he talks about from SNL days. Oh, it's entirely possible. I mean, mm. I went to every single one huh. of my three years there. That was 60 parties. I went to every single one. Mm. No matter how tired I was. Keep in mind, the party started. The party started at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, I think he mentioned something like that. Yeah. And, and and keep in mind also that you've worked a six-day week at Saturday Night Live, right. which amounts to about 90 hours, and you are tired in a stressful environment beyond what you can ever imagine. You are so tired. You've done nothing all week, but you're so wired from having just done a live <laughs> TV show in front of 8 million people, right. where if you mess up, it's live. If you swear, if you say the wrong line, if you forget the line, if you... Mm -hmm. uh, if the sound effects guy has the sound effect come in at the wrong time, the mistake is made and it's out there forever. Forever. Like the pressure is high, my man. And yep. it is, so you're wired. You're, it doesn't matter how tired you are. You've got to go online at this party. Um, let me ask you this. When you were at uh, one of these parties, was Heather Graham ever there? That's the first question. Yes. Okay. And do you recall if it was raining when y'all were leaving the party that Heather Graham was at? There, this so 
Because <laughs> Steve, things... Steve tells that story, uh, his experience with Heather Graham and Umbrellas uh, in episode 45. If anyone wants to go check that conversation out. I, I'm going straight to that when we <laughs> end this interview. Okay. I am very interested. I, I got a job while I was at Center Live at Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It was my first full-time oh, cool. writing job. And and this was one back when Regis was hosting. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was my uh, uh, and it was in prime time. So literally, and I don't know if, if people remember from back then, it was on like four nights a week. Right. And it was like all four episodes were uh, the top 10 shows in America. So I literally wrote on the number one show in America and also the number four, seven, and nine shows in America. Wow. In the same week, you know, for that entire run with, with Regis being the host in primetime. And it was crazy, but I didn't aspire. I mean, even as a 25-year-old, I realized that that was not the path for me to 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 what I wanted to do. So I took, even though it meant a step back in money mm-hmm. and a step back in status and position, I went back to Saturday Night Live um, instead of remaining a writer at Who Wants to Be a Millionaire because, like, what? I don't, what do you aspire to be if you work there? A New York Times crossword writer? A, a Jeopardy writer? <laughs> And that's mm-hmm. and that's not disparaging those professions. Those no, are incredibly smart, talented people. But like that's not my dream. And so I went back to Saturday Night Live because it wasn't a path for me to meet people and do things where I could then have my dreams come true. So I did not go back to um so and I bring that up because Heather Graham was the host on the show where I left. And she came into Higgins to Steve Higgins' office when I was leaving, and she was I mean, stop dead. One of the most gorgeous women in history. <laughs> I couldn't believe how beautiful this woman was. Wow. Oh my gosh. And so, and that, and then I, I walked out and went to go write Who Wants to Be a Millionaire instead of being around her all week. She was breathtaking. So, so you breathtaking. chose Regis over Heather Graham. <laughs> Regis Philbin. Yes, that's how I want to be remembered. Uh huh. There you go. Anything we've missed here? Um, that, that we need to go back and, and cover? Or do you think we've pretty much well, covered everything? Uh, we've covered almost everything. There's, there's one last thing that I want to talk about. It's the thing I'm most proud of in my career. Sure. I have had a, a really cool career. I have done really cool, weird. I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, I've, I've put words in the mouths of, you know, people from Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon to John McEnroe to Glenn Beck to Larry Wilmore. And, uh, you know, that's a, you know, that's a pretty wide array of people Uh, to Michael Strahan, to Kiki Palmer. Um, I have, um, you know, it's, it's been a really awesome ride. I wrote in the number one show in America and all all these cool things. I I cooked with Emeril Lagasse, like all the cool, (laughs) cool things, right? I'm so fortunate that all of these things have happened. But the thing I am proudest of in my career is that I wrote on the BS of A with Brian Sack on The Blaze for it was about two and a half years. And we had a book and we went on tour with Glenn mm-hmm. and we made that audience laugh. Yeah. That a completely underrepresented audience where they just, that audience feels so unheard and mocked and ignored and everything. And, and, and we made, we made them laugh and it was such a great feeling people would come up to me. We, you know, we would go to charity events and stuff with Glenn and perform and do things. And people would come up to us. I mean, like they would like rush up to us and hug us or grab us by the arm and say, thank you. 
thank you for doing this. Thank you. You know, we need a laugh, especially after Gwen, ha ha ha, all this stuff. And, you know, we, we, and we would all laugh and, and, and they were just so appreciative and so grateful. And, um, and it really stuck with me. And I'm so proud of, you know, uh, of, of that and of meeting those people. And, and um, it's just, it's the most Such underrepresented an, right. group in terms of entertainment out there. Too. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm proud of that. And such a great audience too. I mean, they're they're the best, most generous and kind people, and um, I, yes. I I agree with your sentiment exactly as far as them being underrepresented and just completely forgotten. But uh, I'm glad you got that in there. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and and and, and no, and it's funny, and you know, and, and I'm I'm proud to be able to make that audience laugh. And then my next job was going to the nightly show with Larry Wilmore for two years and writing and producing there hmm. and making black lives matter. Yeah. You know, where it's uh, audience laugh. There are many writers who would dare to write for the other side. And, and, but at that point, it's not about being a citizen. It's about being a professional. Right. And it's like, you know, you just make people, you write good jokes. Yeah. Yep. You know what? One of the things that I forgot to mention was I love uh, on your bucket list is walking your daughter down the aisle. That should be every father uh, yeah. who has a daughter. That should be a goal of theirs in life for sure. And I hope that that happens for you, sir. Having daughters I, is I, a blessing, is it not? Uh, it's 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 a joy that I I won't even. I won't even do that. Do it the disservice of trying to describe it. It is because it is indescribable. It is the best thing ever. You know, you, you're. I, I was such a career guy, such a comedy only guy, comedy, comedy, comedy. And I always knew I would love my kids more than anything. And mm. it was beyond that. You know, nothing matters. You know, other than that they are healthy and safe and happy. And you, you know, it just puts everything into perspective in life. Everything awesome. shifts when you have those kids it, it, into the things that matter. And sure does. Um, it's the best thing ever, ever, ever. Yeah, absolutely perfect there. Social media, where can people find you online, Jack Helmuth? I think it's just at Jack Helmuth on Twitter. Um, but the, the uh, yeah, that's I guess that's the main thing. You know, I don't tweet a lot. Um, you know, I t tend to save my writing for uh, for the gigs and for the podcast. Uh -huh. But the, the thing I would want people to do most, please, is is to check out. And, and the, the only way for podcasts like yours which is fantastic and mine to to grow is for people to tell other people right it really is a word of mouth type of thing so you know please if if you know you know someone yeah. who needs a laugh tell people about questionable material with jack and brian yeah. brian sack is insanely talented you guys and are an incredible team and you're right about the word of mouth situation i don't know what it is with me and apple itunes for example where there's something messed up with at the mic and like it never shows up not because it's not charting it's because every time i go in to type in this weird code that they send me to make sure that it does show up it never accepts it so i'm at the point where i'm like okay well whatever it's never going to show up there but people should know about the questionable material podcast which on twitter is at questionable matt 
because you know you run yep. out of characters so questionable mat <laughs> but uh, yep. do check out questionable material great podcast with jack and brian you guys are so funny together i love your show and i hope people will check it out absolutely thank you that, thank you so much um yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it i really would like to see it grow because uh, you know i think we can make it a thing and and eventually get back on tv doing doing what we were doing before so that's that's the goal jack helmuth man uh thanks for being a part of at the mic i really appreciate your time buddy i'm i'm so glad we finally got to do it what a in, what a great pleasure to do this what a fun conversation i forgot about all these things it was really cool to just talk to you about such a variety of things man yeah thank you dude i, I love you thank sure, you so much sure thing hope to see you sooner rather than later buddy i hope so Jack is a lot of fun. He's a great guy. He's a funny guy. And don't forget to check out his own podcast, Questionable Material, qmpodcast.com. He co-hosts that with Brian Sack. And Brian Sack was my guest in episode 44 of At The Mic. So you got a lot of listening assignments to get to. Hey, next time we get together, we're going to sit down with my friend Jonathan Haggerty, who in a previous life tried to get me into shape physically. And I was having none of it. We talked about that. It was a fun conversation. I hope you'll check it out next week. Until then, please go be free and thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. Hey, did you know there's At The Mike Show merchandise now? Yeah, and it's currently at a big discount for a limited time. Head to atthemikeshow.com, look for the shop button at the top of the page, or make it easier on yourself and head to atthemikeshop.com. Enter in code FIRSTTIMEBUY at checkout, and you're going to get $5 off and free shipping on orders over $55. That's offer code FIRSTTIMEBUY at atthemikeshop.com.